0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, TJ Van Tol, And with me on the panel, I have Paige Niedringhaus.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: And Jack Harrington. Hello there. And our special guest today is Alex Olivier. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, very happy to be here. So Alex, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, why you're famous, all those, those great sort of things. <laughs> i think fame. not sure fame is the right word. But yeah, I'm Alex Duvier. I
2: am a product lead at a company called Servos. We are an open source solution for implementing roles and permissions inside of your software applications. My background has been in software development, mainly in speed two B SaaS businesses, and this is a problem that keeps coming up over and over and over. So we decided to solve it once and for all.
0: Excellent. So a nice, small, and easy topic that we can cover <laughs> yeah, pretty quickly. Now I love this because it's one of those features that almost almost any application needs, right? I mean, who is building serious apps without some sort of user uh, yeah. authentication and such? So why don't you start by just explaining, like, I, I know you want to talk a little bit about authentication versus authorization, but maybe you could just start by explaining the basics, right? Like, what are your options today? If I need If I need user management for my web application, like what am I commonly doing today? What are my options? Maybe you could walk through some of the basics to start us off.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you think of a you know, typical web application, you want to have users log in, they want to be able to do various things inside of your system, and you want to do that in a secure and sort of trusted trusted way of doing things. So we're in a world where today authentication with an N is relatively a solved problem. You have the likes of Auth0, you have Firebase authentication, login with Google, GitHub, You know that whole world, OAuth2, wonderful. You know, There's very little reason these days to no reason for you to go and run your own database that has a username and password table. Like, that's just not really a thing you really have to worry about anymore. And you know, there's a whole load of risk you essentially get to take off off your book and off your plate by using a service that specializes in that. But once someone's actually inside an application, there's actually this whole nother set of business logic around like, okay, this person's in, but what can they actually do? Should they be able to submit that pull request? Should they be able to comment on this? Should they be able to, you know, flag, flag a message? And, you know, these kind of business-level actions, and that's authorization. So you know who they are, but can they actually do a thing? Should they be allowed to go and do some particular action? And if you look at sort of traditionally in a kind of typical web API type system, you'll have a request come in, you have some authenticated session, you have a JWT or a cookie or something like that where you know who the user is then you probably have your own sort of user profile database inside of your system, which contains, you know, they're an admin or they're a user, they're in this team, they're in this office, they have this quota, you know, these kind of attributes or sort of directory profile information. And there's solutions for that. You may, you know, legacy systems, you think like LDAP, Azure Active Directory. Nowadays, you might just have your own database. And then the final step is, okay, using that all that context plus the actual thing they're trying to access, if they're trying to submit an expense, the attributes about the particular expense they're interacting with, you would then end up with hard coding your business logic. So you should be able to approve an expense if you're in the admin team, finance team, sorry, and it's less than $5,000, let's say. You'd end up writing an if statement or a case case switch, set of logic to go and decide based on the user and the resource whether they should be able to do the thing or not. And that, for a basic application, is Pretty easy to go and implement simple if statement job done. <laughs> As you start scaling up, you have lots of different resources, lots of different actions that are possible. You're going to end up repeating that code all over the place, so it goes against the whole drive principles. And that business logic is going to get more and more complex if you kind of imagine scaling up. And you're now in a world of like microservices, and you know things are going really well, and you're having very distributed, you end up thinking special services and special languages because they're better fitted. You might have a know, your APIs in Node, you might have a recommendation model in Python, you might have some legacy system in .NET. Whenever this business logic changes around who should be allowed to do what, whenever the authorization logic changes, you're now going to have to go and take what is probably on a spreadsheet or in a Jira ticket or something like that, and go and rewrite that logic in, in a number of languages and redeploy your whole application. So that, at the crux of it, that business logic, that authorization is the area that servos is we're, we're trying to solve in a using a, Uh, service is the open source project to kind of do that as a drop-in replacement Um, so you don't have to uh, hard code all that business logic and essentially decouple it from your application.
3: So is this something that I would work with on my server or my client or both or how is this all fitting together?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you kind of step back a bit and look at well, I think it has been a really big shift in application architecture, especially recently, was this sort of decoupling of components into specialized services. So, you know, if you go way, way back, when you started building an application, you would have to worry about designing your own database because there wasn't an off-the-shelf database system to do. Right. Yeah. You're now worried about, like, how you store data in flat files and all that sort of fun stuff. That got deep, that got sort of taken out. You end up with SQL Server, MySQL, MariaDB, Postgres, et cetera. Off-the-shelf solution and specialized. Good for the job, plug it in, off you go. <laughs> go back about five, 10 years, you do the same with authentication. So before you wrote that username password table, nowadays, you go and plug in Okta, Auth0, Firebase, Auth, Google, whatever. Mm-hmm. And this kind of decoupling of specialized services, same with metrics, same with logging, same with request tracing, you know, there's plugged in things and very much accelerated by Kubernetes and sidecars and all this kind of the modern stack, as it were. And Serbos is one of those. So service is a standalone service. You run inside your system. So you run it on your server. If you're in Kubernetes, you can run it as a sidecar. If you're in like just running bare metal VMs, you can just stick the binary on there and run it. If you're in Lambda, you can run it in a Lambda function. And so Serbos is a, a service that's inside your network. So you're going to have extremely low latency for doing these authorization checks. So in your code, where you would have had that complicated if-else style statement to work out who can do what, you now replace all of that business logic with a single call out to that Serbos instance. And you say to the Serbos instance, I have this user or principal, because it could be an API key, it could be a service token, whatever. has these attributes. They're an admin, they're in this team, they're in this office, trying to do X action on this resource. It's a expense resource. It's from this office. It's of this amount for this supplier. And that service instance replies with a very simple boolean, allow or deny. (laughs) So in your code base, it's now a single if statement to work out whether an action should be allowed or not. Now, the beauty of having this standalone kind of instance inside your system that, that's doing this and that single point to work out whether an actually should be allowed or not, is you're now going to get a consistent answer regardless of where in your stack you're doing these checks from? So it could be in your, your front-end service. It could be in your back-end for your API. It could be calling it from some async worker. It could be calling it from some batch job somewhere. Wherever these checks are, regardless of what language, they're going through a single point and you're going to get a consistent answer. The beauty of that is twofold. One is when you update the business logic for that service instance for when the rules are changed, there's one place to update it. And you do that through policy configuration files. And when that change is made, all the tests pass, et cetera, all your services and all your systems get updated at the same time. And there's no need- you don't need to touch your application code. You're going to get that-, that update propagated essentially out. And you're going to start serving based on the new permission logic uh, without any work. And the side advantage is if you're in, a- in an environment that has quite strict rules around audit logging access controls you know regulated industries well a big chunk of service users today are in in fintech and and insurance tech because there's one point where the decisions are being made you're going to get a clean and consistent audit log this time this principal tried to do this action on this resource and it was either allowed or denied and so that's that's the the problem that i personally had to solve you know a dozen times over my career thus far both as an engineer and as a product person and we're now you know, every time we're like, "Why the hell are we building this system?" <laughs> <laughs> right. Hence, we weren't like, "Let's consult this once and for all," and that—that's what Cerbos is. Uh, again, completely open source, patch two license, grab it off GitHub, plug in and, and get going.
1: Okay, so how do you tell Cerbos what the rules are for your particular organization? Because yeah. that's what I'm yeah. really interested. That's what in. I was going to
0: ask you. I <laughs> have built.
1: You know, I've worked on teams where we've built our own custom authentication, and it is yep. a nightmare, just as you said, there's so many edge cases that always end up being real pain. So how do you tell Servos, these are the rules or, or update it? Once you've got some rules in it,
2: yeah. Yeah. So, my, my, mine and the rest of our team's background is from running very large distributed high throughput, low latency systems, sort of like 25 billion requests a second was uh, a day, sorry, was kind of the scale we, we were running at in our previous companies. And so, we got kind of familiar with the modern sort of cloud native tech stack where you're, you know, scalable, Kubernetes, serverless, stateless architectures, these kind of things. And one of the principles that is kind of very much in that world is like the whole GitOps motion, where if you look at your Kubernetes configuration, for example, you define manifests in a Git repo, that's your source of truth. And you change your deployment options, your cluster picks that up and Suddenly, your cluster goes through a reconciliation loop, and everything's now kind of synchronized. So we really like that pattern because it gives you that that again, sort of like audit log or that that change history, a single source of the truth, and we're applying that to authorization. So the way you define this business logic is through defining service policies, and these are YAML files. They'll look very familiar to Kubernetes manifests if you're used to those. Uh, good developers copy great developers paste I think that's, that's a Scott Hanselman quote and so that format and that, that there's a really nice tool chain around that today so you define these business logic this business logic as a policy and, and your policies state here are the different resource types so if you're building like an HR system you might have an employee resource, you might have a department resource, you might have a salary resource, you might have a you know, uh, insurance resource. You define all the different actions in this YAML format. So create, read, update, delete are the typical ones, but it's open-ended. So you can have very business specific actions. So approve, deny, comment, flag. It's open-ended to define how you want. And for the, each of those actions, you define what the additions are. So to do this action, you must have this particular role. And to do another action, you might have another particular role. And for basic, what's traditionally known as RBAC, role-based access control, that's really all you need to define. Um, So for this action, you must have this role, and that service instance, when the request comes in, will check whether that user has a role or not. And that's kind of the the base. In reality, though, Even if you think you're doing it hardback, generally, things are much more detailed than that. And there's another layer where you're starting to actually check the value of attributes.
3: Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, can you do your $500 expense approval in this?
2: Exactly. So this is really, you know, where Servos. kind of focusing, which is ABAC, attribute-based access control. So as well as defining, you must have this role or you must have this wildcard or you might have a particular role, you can also start defining conditions. And the way you define conditions is through an expression language. It's called Common Expression Language. It's a Google open source uh, way of defining essentially Boolean logic. Huh. It's a great library, super performant. Um, Service itself is really Go. It's a, it's a Go library. And with these service policies, you can define all these conditions must be matched or one of these conditions must be matched or a subset of the conditions must be matched. And you can do very kind of and or type, type structure around the conditions. Then the conditions themselves are referencing either attributes about the principle So, the user or the the token making the request and the resource. So, the particular expense you're trying to look at, it has an attribute called amount. And inside of those conditions in your policies, you're essentially comparing and doing Boolean logic on those values. So, you would say something like the principal ID must not equal the owner ID of a resource. And you can write that out in pretty much prose because it's a very sort of structured and sort of clean way of defining it. And then that's your policy files. And you can kind of keep evolving and changing that over time. One thing you need to be careful of when you define this business logic is making sure you've caught sort of all the edge cases. So one of the bits of tooling that's available is you can actually write unit tests against service policies. So you can essentially do test-driven development for authorization logic, which, if this logic was encoded in your application, would be a bit of a nightmare because uh, you're going to have to worry about instrumenting and, and you know orchestrating the rest of your application before you can even get down to testing that bit. By having your authorization logic standalone and defined in these policy files using the CERBOS sort of framework that we give you you get full test room development so you give it example users example principles and it does full matrix testing of every single combination of user resource and action and making sure that the results are as you expect and you can plug that into your ci pipeline github actions etc that's pretty cool any changes are uh, mm-hmm. as you expect before they get rolled out and going back to the whole kind of GitOps workflow, you know, you've made your change, it hits what you need and gets merged into the main branch. And then those serverless instances that are running inside of your stack are getting notified from the Git repo that there's a new update available and it will put it down and start serving based upon that as as you would with sort of typical CICD pipeline.
0: So I, I kind of want to back up for just a second and make sure I understood some of how how this works. So you you had said that the the actual sort of business logic, the core like sort of underlying policies are defined by these sort of manifest files, right? So I'm gonna pose you a specific example just because I'm just trying to think think through this. So let's say I'm building a system where certain people on the sales team can approve expense reports, right? And so I might have a manifest that's like, these four people at the company, these four users are allowed to do it. And then oh, new person joins, new salesperson on the team, and they're allowed to approve expense reports. If I wanted to add that role to them, Am I like manually editing a manifest? Am I building like a UI around this so like my sales director can go in and add the new person themselves? Like, do you have like APIs for man for like modifying this? I'm just sort of trying to paint a picture of what this would look like sort of in a real deployment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So going back to kind of that user directory type structure, which some sort of every application has, be it a profile database, those kind of things. That's where you have those attributes. So, this person is a sales director, this person is in the sales team, this person looks after XYZ region, let's say. And that's kind of all metadata that's about the user that's in your application. And, high chance if you're building like a SAS platform, you already have your own UIs for user management. Like, you don't want to have to go out to some other tool to support that. So, where Servoz fits in is taking that context so in your application code where a request comes in to do a particular action you know who the user is you fetch this state and about the particular user they're in the sales team they're in this region etc and then in the re- and before you do the action you send a request out to a service instance saying i have this user they have these attributes they're trying to do this action on this resource that has these attributes so the service policies themselves and the service instances as a whole are completely stateless there's no like database there's no there's no backing data store that holds who does what. And the policies themselves are evaluating based upon those inputs that are coming in the request to the service instance, which avoids this kind of nasty problem in some other approaches where you have to like synchronize state from your application to the authorization layer, which is going to lead to all sorts of fun, you know, cache misses and you know, <laughs> delays of getting things synchronized across all your different uh, services and instances. So the service instance and the policies are comparing the inputs and coming up uh, based on the policies, with either an allow or a deny decision, primarily.
0: So it sounds like you're you're kind of bringing your own user management. You're bringing your own metadata, and it Cerbos is acting almost like a, a like a protocol or an API for like enforcing those things, or like a standardized way of performing those actions. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Because you know, to your application now, it is a a single call out. It's a single you know, call. Cerbos dot check resource principal resource action. And it comes back with an allow or deny. The actual okay. logic behind the scenes is defined in those policy files, which can now evolve independently of your code base. Okay. And that's where the really power power comes in. Because if you think we think sort of in a company, who really owns the requirements for authorization, it's not the developer doing the coding. It's gonna be a product manager, a product owner, maybe like a security team might have some input on you know audit requirements and those sort of things. So where Sebos kind of sits is the engine that the developer sort of implements to check these, to check the permissions. But it abstracts the logic out into these policy definitions, which then can be evolved on independently and, you know, potentially by the product owner directly without having to open a ticket, put it in the Jira backlog every time that the authorization logic needs to change. And they'll, you know, say come back in three months and it might get done.
0: Okay.
3: Can I pull a TJ here? And and ask and kind of like take us back a second and and mm-hmm. like I mean this is a React roundup so as React developers am I I need to basically know can I show the button on the page or not absolutely and there's gonna be a button, bunch of buttons on the page right so do I hit your API a bunch of times how do I make sure that I'm hitting it the same way that the back end is because I guaranteed like the microservice is gonna do the, be be doing this as well right I'm <laughs> not we're not gonna have Like the the API, the AI, and the UI be like the source of truth on this, right? So, you know, so how do I just um, what's the game plan here?
2: Yeah. So, there's kind of two ways to do this. And we see kind of uses for both depending on how applications are architected. The most straightforward, I would say, is actually to have the permissions being returned with your data. Mm. So, your React applications hitting your application API, your backend API, the API is fetching something from a database or whatever. Along with that response, it's also returning back the permissions that Serbo says. Sure. Users Here's your, your list of
3: users. Requests. You can invite a new user, but you can't do exactly delete a user. Whatever. Yeah.
2: So yes, yeah, so you might get view allowed, delete allow. You know, create deny. Right. And you end up with this booleans. Right. And then that goes down to your front, uh, down to your front end, and then inside of your your um, React app. Now you're basically conditioning a very simple conditional, show or hide yeah, yeah. components based upon it. And the nice thing there, and it's again. You know, it's kind of two orders removed from the front end. But when the policies change in the serverless instance, the serverless instance now starts returning different results. Your API now starts returning different uh, allow or deny decisions. And then you, your UI updates without you having to do any work.
3: Oh, I love that. Um,
2: and so it's a very sort of clean, <laughs> you're actually driving your UI from your back end um, in terms of sort of conditioning and controlling things. And then if you have multiple channels, you might have a React web, you might have a React native app, you might have XYZ other the way your data is consumed, much through your pure API. It's all running off the same decisioning logic.
3: Yeah, and that's great because the UI isn't like asking and maybe offering different, like a different assessment of who this person is, right, than the back end. And so you make sure that those yes. two things are in sync.
2: That's great. That's super clean. I love that. And the kind of other other use case of something like Servos, this sort of decisioning engine around who's allowed to do what, is actually as well as actions upon data. Another really common use case is like product packaging, like feature control. So user A has paid for the premium package so they get all the features. User B might be on the standard package and they only get three of the five features and they have a sort of quota defined. Based on what packages and what features you get, that can now just be a policy. And you have a like permissions endpoint on your API, which is, again, passing through those results uh, from the service instance. And now you, in your UI layer, can actually enforce or conditionally show a hide or you know, show a teaser screen for different features based on, again, the, the, the business logic that's defined as configuration rather than code in that sort of policy use case and product packaging use case.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot because I've definitely been a part of implementations where the front end had logic to whether to show or hide the button and then the back end had different logic, whether to like (laughs) authorize the action. And then, you know, maybe the mobile app has uh, (laughs) has its own own check uh, so it can get chaotic pretty quickly. So I like the idea of just consolidating it all in one place. It's an interesting idea, and there might be other things that you need to send, right? You know, oh, today we it was account
3: balance, and now we're adding like you know some other conditional, right? And so you don't you would have to the UI would have to go and like
2: oh wait hold on there's new stuff to send blah 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 blah
3: you know this is all contained. I love that. That's great.
2: Yeah, and yeah, there's some sort of further some sort of future feature sets we're working on to sort of streamline the the in browser. Uh, policy checks because not all things necessarily require a round trip to the server if you're just like conditionally rendering buttons and you've already got the data in, in browser for example for a detail screen you can maybe save a round trip and you know there's, there's ways that we're working on the moment to actually do like embeddable authorization that's a, a module inside of your front end stack based on the same source of truth and um, without having to necessarily return extra data from the api but that's that's a uh,
1: coming soon <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to hear more about the uh, the testing that you were talking about earlier, yeah. because I'm very familiar with writing unit tests or integration tests inside of an application using JSON and things like Jest or different testing frameworks. So how do you test Servos?
2: Yeah, so you have your policies, this resource type, these are the actions, here are the conditions that must be met for each action to be allowed. And then in a very similar format, and it's a YAML definition, you create you define some example principles, some example resources, and then Serbos uh, will actually go and test every combination of resource and principle and action and do like a full matrix testing. So you end up with like that grid you know, principle action, for uh, a principle resource, what actions are allowed for each. And then you, you simply say for a you know, page for resource one, allow, every uh, action read should be allowed, action delete should be denied, action create, should be allowed. And service will actually run all those iterations through your actual policies and give you a, a test output very similar to what you get from, you know, Jest and other testing frameworks that says, this test passed, this has failed, here are the things that you're looking at. And, and the beauty there is when you do evolve your business logic, this will be be there to kind of catch when things maybe haven't changed as you expected and, and you now you know, may have accidentally stuck a wild card in there and God forbid everyone has access to do everything. This, <laughs> this would catch thing, things early on and you, you can... Uh, fix them before you know go anywhere near near production
0: nice so I'm curious servos is open source what was the reasoning behind that decision and how does that end up working out from like a business perspective
2: yeah yeah this, we get asked this a lot and um, for <laughs> it's a very ob- obvious question when you look at something like this so our view of the world and this is from our previous experience of various companies is for something like this, 99.9% of our competition is a developer going and writing yeah, that, yeah. that logic block themselves. And yep, you, know,
0: uh-huh. you end
2: up writing it five, six, seven times, you, know, you go over and over and over again. So our view is, let's get the core, the engine of Serbos, something that is as simple as possible for a developer to just pluck off the shelf, plug into their app, and not write that logic themselves. So that's why we've taken that approach. You know, it's Apache 2 license, you can use it. As and where you wish, you can fork the code if you want. You can embed it; you know, it's completely open that way. Um, because we just want to make make sure no one has to reinvent the wheel of authorization. Because really, that's what you end up doing over and over and over again. So that that's how we've been set up, and you know how that affects us kind of as a business. You know, we're, we're venture backed; we raise, we've got some great VCs uh, backing us on this, and and you know we're very fortunate to ha- have that backing. And but where we're going with this is, you know, that the core is is the engine that's going to power everything we're doing. Uh, So Serbus is a business. Where we're going next is actually, as I was saying earlier, the actual requirements of authorization aren't with a developer, they're with a a product owner, a product manager, so other parts of the business, who aren't necessarily going to be happy about living in YAML files or writing tests and those sort of things. So, Using the service core, you know what's out there today as the engine and and the component that is the enforcement of policies. We're we're building a, a commercialized management layer that sits on top, a, a control plane, you know, as it were. So this will be a, a UI-based workflow where you can start bringing maybe those less technical people on your in your team to actually start defining and managing policies through through a UI, which can be much more user-friendly, let's say, than living in. In YAML files, and then a whole sort of suite of tools around that to, to support it. So things like running the tests and manage CI pipeline for compiling and distributing those policies to all your service instances that are, are running out in your infrastructure, and um, tooling around letting you know the impact of a change. So you know, based on this change you're proposing previously, where you had you know, 5,000 actions allowed, it's now going to be only 3,000 actions allowed. Is that as you expect and, and, and these kind of things and you know, there's a whole whole kind of roadmap we have out uh, around when it comes to compliance and regulatory needs you know making sure you have the proper audit logs and audit trails and, and UIs for actually inspecting those. Uh, having gone through ISO 27001 oh, like, compliance a few <laughs> times and being the guy that got dragged into a room every year in the uh, basement by an auditor and had to access controls.
1: Uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> it sucked. So yeah. we're, we're solving for, for that. And yeah, it's actually nice, actually building a product that solves for a pain I experienced myself <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Everything we're building kind of in that world will sit on its open source core. So there's no special hooks. There won't be a, a, a commercial fork of Serbos. It will be a layer that sits on top and the interface it speaks over is, is again, kind of be open source. Serbos itself is written in Go. It's gRPC, protobuf definitions for everything. So the exact same interface that we'll be using to build the service control plane. You could hook into yourself if you wanted to integrate it with your existing controls as well.
3: Hold up, hold up. Do I have to talk gRPC?
2: If you're in or no JavaScript, we have SDKs that kind of hide all that. Oh, so God. There's an interface. There is a REST uh, API layer on top of it, as well as the GRPC.
3: Sorry, feature. I just do gRPC every day.
2: I'm, it hurts.
3: <laughs> it literally hurts.
2: The core the core API is gRPC,
0: but there is a a REST layer on top. Oh, of it well. thank you, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's a super smart business model because I think you're right. It's it's sort of in, in a sense, like what developers want is the convenience, but it's h- going to be hard to convince developers to pay for something like this because you're always going to fight the like, but I can just write this myself with some if checks and write like <laughs> uh, some basic stuff. But the enterprise use case is really appealing because they will pay for this to integrate with their whole Microsoft suite that they've they've already got and the user management software and the auditing and security aspects of this too, I could see a lot of potential. So I, yeah. I think it's a pretty smart setup.
2: <laughs> oh, well, well, time will tell, but we hope so. <laughs> 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 uh, and, and it's not just like the actual writing policies that if you're a developer you're happy doing to run a service like this in production, you're also gonna worry about log collection metrics. You need to go like the audit logs that come out. Like, where do you send those to? If you're happy running the elk stack with Elastic Cache and you know all those fun tools, Elastic uh, uh, yeah, all the Elastic Cache servers on top and Cabana and all that sort of stuff, off you go. Great services, <laughs> cloud native. It exposes Prometheus metrics. It does open telemetry. It outputs standardized JSON line logs. Great. Don't want to run that yourself, or don't want to run a CI pipeline that's where we'll have a solution where we have a solution that you can just drop in and take all that workload off you. And so you can really focus on delivering the core value of your product.
1: Well, speaking as somebody who has been on products where we get a request from one of our product managers to allow extra users, and it is literally just putting in a new user ID into a file that would be so great if developers didn't have to worry about that, and product managers could add new users as they wanted.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been in, I've been on in the in your shoes on both as a, a developer and as a product person. And like I said, we're just trying to get as much of the uh, the workload off off the team and, and allow you to focus on the core value of your system.
0: Oops, TJ you has something. No, I'm just uh, looking over the. It's super interesting. I just really like the the model. So I'm just perusing your, your documentation. <laughs> I like your logo Go quite a bit. To take a turn from the, the serious authentication <laughs> talk, if you're not, so it's this the, 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 the name of the, it's C-E-R-B-O-S. So you can find them on GitHub pretty easily. The logo is pretty amazing. I, I have to know if there's a story behind this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, I think we haven't quite agreed
2: on a single story for this, but Servos brain, three-headed dog, Serbi, mm-hmm. that's kind of where where we, we landed on it. Effectively knowing our logo is, is our Serbi, but ah, uh, That's a great that's, logo! Yeah, that's oh, so cute. It's quite nice. But I, I say we, we go and you know, we go to a lot of developer conferences. I'm going to be at nation Security Con next week, in fact, when this goes out. We did Web Summit last year as well, and I think about 50% of the people that we spoke to just came up to the booth and said, love your logo. But we always send <laughs> loads of stickers to give away. So, yeah. Oh, no.
1: what?
2: You need a sticker, sticker. We will, sure. I will send you some stickers. Oh, we? yeah. That'd be cool. great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so one question that I have is if I wanted to get started with servos, what is what is your recommendation for somebody who's new to it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we have kind of multiple avenues in depending on whether you're someone that learns by doing or learn by reading. If you're a kind of a doer, we have a load of different starter projects in different languages and frameworks. We have like a Next.js app, we have a Nux demo, we have a SvelteKit demo as well, which gives you a full setup, server front-end service instance policies, and you can experiment with that. Uh, you can find all that on the ecosystem page on service.dev. If you want to just dive in and start working with policies directly, we have an online playground, which is play.service.dev, which allows you to write in your browser, prototype, test, evaluate uh, policies, and it gives you real-time feedback of the impact of that particular policy. And there's some example projects as well, like an expenses tracking application I've mentioned a few times, that's in there. And then if you're one that's more for reading, we have very extensive documentation on the doc site. So docs.service.dev, um, and then there's a kind of a, a multi multi-part uh, getting started guide that walks you through from nothing on your dev machine to a fully deployed environment at the other end, having written policies, evolved them, taking advantage of all the different kind of functionality. So that's kind of the tooling, that kind of the resources we have out there. There's a whole YouTube series as well if you want to hear more of my voice. Unfortunately, (laughs) the (laughs) and the kind of the final thing to kind of call out as well is the way we recommend you start introducing this into an existing project. Because this comes up quite a lot, is start off with just sitting down with whoever has the requirements of authorization and getting down on usually a spreadsheet, resources, roles, who can do what, and you end up with this kind of tick box and you very quickly realize that some of these are conditional. So you end up true, false, maybe, or sometimes in some of the cells. (laughs) I mean, that really helps everyone kind of align on that. And we actually have a whole guide of how to go from that spreadsheet through to actually uh, writing policies away. And we recommend starting with like just one of the resource types in your system because you can incrementally adopt service. You don't have to go and rip out everything and start from scratch. You know, if you're building an HR system, start with just the expenses section and you have an expense resource and take that if-else logic that's in your code, replace that with a single call out to a instance, have a single policy type of expense and then build up from there. And and, you know, at any point, you you get stuck or or you're not sure what to do, we actually run free workshops as well. uh, You can just book on our website and you'll get myself or one of the other members of the team and we'll interactively go through your use case, build it in the playground with you all for free to help you kind of get up and running and and help you start your journey on decoupling authorization from your application. That's really nice. That's
1: a real selling point, yeah.
0: Not good. So what's coming up next for Servos? What do you have in the works or what sort of stuff are you looking into?
2: Yeah, so on the open core side of things, we are have always been kind of iterating based on the feedback. So recently we've added support for some more metrics, some more telemetry. And we've had a few community contributions as well around that and also kind of enhancing the types of conditions that you can do. So we recently added like hierarchies, and hierarchical functions so if you have like a nested tree of data you can actually use service policies to kind of inspect that tree and make a decision and that's kind of a constant iteration and i mentioned this before we're working as well on this service cloud commercial offering which is that ui based workflow for managing and evolving policies we are starting to test this with some of our uh, early users and we'll be opening up that to kind of m- more users over the next uh, couple of months um, if you want to find out more, you can register interest at next slash next. It's a, just a very simple form to put in and uh, we'll be in touch to kind of get you up and running. But that gives you that full end-to-end managed environment for getting your policies in, defining them, evolving them, compiling them, distributing them, and then getting back the audit logs and the other tooling around it. And that's that's kind of where we're going over this year, really, to enable that and bring those other personas and in, in other roles into the word of authorization and allowing them to own it and much more sort of self-service around it rather than have to go and rely on developers all the time.
0: Very cool. I love the design of the whole site. I was just looking at your your next site and I was also looking at your playground. It's it's super well done. So nice Thank work on that much. as well.
2: Yeah. Again, like everything we're doing is just making it the the nicest sort of developer experience that you can. You know, there's, we know there's a lot more we need to do, but that really has been our focus because in the, the day we're competing against building yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> making are, it as easy as possible.
3: Are there architecture <laughs> yeah. guidelines on there? Like you you mentioned that really great. You know, basically return permissions as part of. Well, not permissions, but I guess. Well, yeah, permissions, I guess. Yeah. As part of the payload. Are the, is that up on there? Is like, hey, this is our recommended architecture.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of documentation. We also are publishing, at this rate, it's about a guide a week on a Woo. blog of different different architectures and ways of deploying we where defining your policies, sort of everything from very technical through to more philosophical ways of approaching a- authorization. So, you know, just trying to, Firstly, get the word out that there is a difference between authentication and authorization, going back to kind of where we started this conversation, and then the different approaches to do it and how you can sort of fix your mental model of you know, how these things will stick together. Um, and obviously doing conversations like this, as well as trying to get more people to figure out where this sits in their
0: architecture. Alex, this has been great. Are there any, is there anything about Servos or really anything at this point that we've missed? Anything else you want to make sure to share or flag or make sure our listeners know about?
2: Yeah, there's one interesting challenge with decoupling authorization, which you don't really realize until you try and implement it yourself, which is what we kind of refer to as the listing problem. So it's all very well having a resource. You know, you've hit some API, you've got your object, and you want to check whether you can do an action on it or not. But imagine if you're trying to present like an index page or a listing page of all, all your employees or all your comments or all your expenses. You know, there could be hundreds, thousands, millions of these records in your database. And the, the bad way of doing it is to actually get every single one of those records, do a check for each of them, and return maybe the five or, or none that that user is actually authorized to access. So Cerbos has something that is, we believe, is fairly unique, uh, which we call a query plan. So <clears> this is kind of like a partial evaluation where you say to Cerbos, I have this principal, so this user, these, this ID, these attributes, etc., who's trying to do the view action on the resource kind of expense. So you're not you're not giving like a concrete resource; you're just saying the type of resource. And this is a secondary endpoint, Cerbos, and Cerbos will give you back what we call a query plan, which is the smallest set of predicates that you need to apply to your data fetching layer, be it a where clause or like a Mongo filter, to return just the instances from your data storage layer that that user would have permission to access. Wow. Wow. So inside the Cerbus engine, we based on the context we have, so we know the principle, we know all their resource, we know all their attributes, and based on the policies for that resource kind, CERBOS gives you back one of three results. It says always allow because there's like some wild card and this person should always have access, always deny because there's some rule that says this person should never have access to this resource kind, or a conditional. And that conditional is a an abstract syntax tree, an AST of conditions that are defined in a very standardized way, which says this field must be equal to this value, this attribute must. Must be true this attribute must appear in this list etc and it does lots of deduplication and optimization in that query plan and you'll get back into your code base and um, those filters and you can adapt that into a where clause of mongo filter and API lookup whatever makes sense because it is an abstract tree uh, we have pre-built adapters for so things like prisma and SQL alchemy that convert it automatically into filter but it's abstract you can plug it to anything. And this is, as far as we're concerned, the only way you can really do scalable a decoupled authorization um, because you're only going to be fetching from your database or your data storage the instances that the, that user would have access to still based on those policies which are being managed you know, by your product team, your product team, your product owner in a decoupled kind of approach. And, and that is a component of service the, the query plan, which truly helps you build a scalable, decoupled, stateless authorization
0: architecture for your systems
1: that is very cool
0: well nice to build <laughs> <laughs> well alex this is this has been a lot of fun and i'll just encourage people if you if you even if you have no interest in auth- authentication or authorization you have to go to servos.dev just to look at the just to look at the logo and <laughs> i mean if you do have authorization and authentication needs or i'm sorry i should know this by now if you have authorization needs, <laughs> you should check out ServiceStack. Right. Don't met, don't this mess that really, up, it's man. I, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I've been it's, listening. I've got it under control, Jack. Is it the, uh, the is it a something
3: n versus a something n or like how many well, letters? Well, authentication
2: is? is like auth n, and then oh. authorization, depending yeah. if you're American or British, is either auth z or auth z. Oh.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, with that, why don't we move into our picks where we just pick something fun, shows, kitchen gadgets from our around our lives. And Paige, do you want to kick us off?
1: Yes, I will kick us off for this week. So my pick is going to be a portable monitor screen that I actually got for Christmas. And I had the chance to take it with me on a trip last week. And it is from Amazon and it's called the Arzopa, A-R-Z-O-P-A, Portable Monitor. And what's so nice about it, because I actually got this recommendation from a coworker who brought it on a work trip, is that it is, I think it's under maybe it's half a pound, so it's like eight ounces or something. It's very lightweight. It's a 16-inch monitor, and it connects to my MacBook with just one USB-C cable. It doesn't need a a power source. It It just plugs in, and it's pretty much good to go. So... You know, if you're a person who travels at all for work, or you just want an extra monitor because maybe your laptop screen's a little bit small, this is definitely something that I would recommend. It folds up, it has a cover, you can... On kind of jet the cover out so that it will actually hold the monitor up or make it stand up at different angles. It's really nice. And it's not extremely expensive like some of the ones that I've seen. So it's maybe $150 to 170 Oh, that's US. not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Not crazy. It, it was really reasonable compared to some of the other ones that I've been looking at in the past. So, you know, if you want something like this, I would definitely say check it out it was pretty handy to have and it was very easy to get started with
0: (laughs) does it come with a cover to like protect the screen or
1: it does and the cover actually has little hinges in it so when you're using it you can just kind of unhook the cover because i guess it's probably magnets that keep it in in place and then use that as the stand and just have it at different angles Hmm.
0: I'll have to check this out because I always get annoyed. I'm a, I'm a multiple monitor person, but oh, obviously definitely. <laughs> with with traveling, it's like,
1: it's hard. historically,
0: <laughs> you've just been kind of out of luck. So let's check this out. <laughs> it's like you always want, you
3: always imagine, I'm going to work in the hotel, you know, mm-hmm. after after the day. And it's yeah. like, and they get there and you're like, oh,
0: I'm going to laugh. Yeah.
1: I'm just waiting for the AR glasses.
0: Yeah. <laughs> put on the glasses. I've got monitors everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's the future I want.
1: That would be cool. <laughs>
0: Jack, what picks do you have for us?
3: Sure. So I've been obsessing on cleaning my desk and getting it with absolutely nothing on it, like the the zero desk thing, except for like monitor mounts and that sort of stuff. And that is, I've involved now a lot of 3D printing. So I've been like 3D printing brackets for my headphones and all of that. stuff. But of course, nothing off the shelf matches my stuff. So I need to create it on the fly. And like, I've just, I was going around trying to find a good CAD tool for those free, you know? And it's always like, it's whatever, there's a whole bunch of things. And I, I finally found one, Autodesk 360, Fusion 360. Turns out there's a free, it's free for you, you know, just basically personal use for making like a headphone holder or whatever. Uh, and it's just great. It's really fun to actually make some model on your computer, just like take out the calipers and figure out how to make it, right? And then draft it up and then literally an hour later, it's in your hand. I think it's just so, if you they got a 3D printer, it's just so
0: cool. So, been really geeking out on that lately. And, and now my desk is, like, perfectly clean. It's great. So, are you designing, like, hooks? Like, you say headphone stand, is this, like, mounted under your desk, or...? Well, I've got a boom arm that holds my
3: microphone. So, yeah. I might as well use that, you know. But to clip onto it, you know, was kind of a pain because it's got a you know it's a circle right so i ended up like okay. creating like a, a thing that would wrap around a circle and then kind of come out and then you'd hang and hang your headphones on that it was very nice cool and that way yeah, this is one i mean there's like everything there's, you know I've got my <laughs> my video recorder my audio recorder all of
0: that stuff you know it's like my desk was Fairly messy. It's the life of a YouTube superstar, right? That's the downside, <laughs> you have so much <laughs> stuff, yes. Right. As long as it's out
1: of frame, it's okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, no kidding, yeah. Although so many people are doing like the, the in, like Alex has got the big mic. Well, everybody's got the, no, actually, Paige, you don't, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, there, you, uh, go. My, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Paige just is just right below. Yeah, just yeah. outside,
0: there you go. <laughs> nice. Things you gotta do for audio quality. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, my pick for this week is going to be National Geographic, and specifically their newsletter, which my wife got me interested in uh, because she had gotten into it. And basically, it's a newsletter with all their articles that they put out, which I found are incredibly high quality and very interesting, especially if you're into historical things. They do a lot of like art. What's the latest going on? And Archaeology and different animal studies and whatnot, and you get like five free articles a month, and then you can sign up. That's sort of their business model. You can sign up for a monthly subscription if you end up reading enough of it. But uh, even if you just sign up for the free newsletter and just like peruse the the headings, I can I find it pretty interesting. Although you can lose a lot of time that way. So if you're (laughs) trying to avoid spending time reading random articles on the internet, maybe not for you. But if you're interested in that sort of stuff, I I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Cool. And Alex, what picks do you have for us?
2: Yeah, so going on uh, what Paige was saying about you know, traveling and having you know, second monitors, et cetera, uh, I spend way too much time on airplanes. And I think something like 50-something flights last year. Oh, and no. One, th- one of the things that kind of yeah, annoys me is I've got my AirPods or so I've got my like Bose headphones, headphones but you know, occasionally there's actually something I want to watch that's on, on the in-flight entertainment thing. So my pick is something called an RHA Wireless Flight Adapter. Which is a little Bluetooth box which you plug into the headphone port on the inflight entertainment, and then you connect your Bluetooth headphones to that. Oh, so I can yeah. use my nice. Bose headphones. That headphones is clever. To plug in to well to Bluetooth to this box, which then this box is plugged into the inflight entertainment, and I you know, it's still a wireless, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Charges off USB C. Fits. It's a very you know, tiny little box. Fits in my backpack and. Yeah, you can enjoy a decent quality audio rather than having to use the like, the, the airline's little tiny $2 <laughs> uh, headphones that they, they give you. So you might actually be able to hear the film. I'm, I'm such a klutz,
3: though. I foresee myself like kind of like knocking it off or ripping it like <laughs> I'm going trying to get up to go to the bathroom or something like that. I mean, <laughs> the, the seats are always like so
0: tiny.
2: Yeah, the nice thing is this the box itself is so sort of battery powered. So it literally just slides in and just sits kind of flush. Oh, the wow. Seat, and it's got battery in it. You just charge it with USB-C. And so you are truly wireless. You're not tethered to your seat. So when you, you know, I'm the same, when you do get up to go to the bathroom or whatever, you oh, know. Well, you could actually yeah, still be listening yeah, to your show. Well, all that <laughs> Yeah.
3: I mean, why not? Well, you're, you're queuing uh, up. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so there's always a line for the bathroom. Yeah.
2: Indeed. Indeed. say so one of my various, uh, Travel must-haves. Very
0: that's cool. cool. Well, excellent, Alex. This has been a ton of fun chatting. Uh, my last question for you is: if people want to follow you, uh, whatever the case may be, is there a good spot to to go for that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, follow me on Twitter if that's you know, still around by the time this comes out. <laughs> um, I'm just at Alex Olivier. <laughs> that's
0: A L E X O L I V I E R. Yeah. Excellent. Chatting. Well, it was awesome chatting with you, and see everybody next week. Bye, Thanks. everybody.
1: All right. See you then.